affirmation, our visualization for this week involves the aura, our own aura of light and color and the auras of all those around us. Swamiji says, begin by imagining all the people in the world. people around us and feel and imagine and see in your mind's eye that everybody walking around is emanating light. And that light is of all the different colors of the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, all the colors of the rainbow. The whole spectrum of the rainbow is represented by humankind because each of those colors is reflective of consciousness. So every individual walks around emanating a consciousness. And all of those colors affect us. And not all colors are bright and clear. Some individuals of dark, Um, unkind, evil, or confused, depressed. Their colors are not bright at all. Their colors are muddied, murky, dim. And all those colors too, as we pass through this world, they all touch us, leave us a little changed, unless unless the aura that we personally emanate has more magnetism. So the essence of this practice is to consciously cultivate a powerful, magnetic, bright, clear-colored aura of our own. So as we imagine our physical body moving through this world, interacting with other bodies, that that powerful field of color, magnetic color, magnetic because conscious, not merely passive, but moving and active, that magnetic color cuts a swath right through everyone else's energy, lifting theirs, or at least neutralizing its impact on us. So see yourself now, walking as it were through crowds of people, each of whom is emanating their own light of various hues. But see ourselves surrounded for the moment just in clear bright light, but moving literally within that bubble. And see how the power of our bright light just moves right through and everyone else's light shapes itself around ours without penetrating it. To strengthen that aura now, let's do this visualization. Swamiji says, imagine the light emanating from the heart. He doesn't suggest that we color that light, but if you feel so inclined, you may color the light that emanates from you, as long as it's a clear, uplifting color. 
We like colors that, through which the light shines perfectly. Imagine that color emanating from your heart. Then radiate that light, that light, he says, upward to the spiritual eye and then outward from there to the world so that the bright beacon of light actually comes from our spiritual eye. We've lifted the ego from the medulla, carried on that light into the spiritual eye, and that's the point at which that great light emanates. Feel the power of that light emanating out and creating, as I said, this complete cloud of light around us, circle of light, bubble of light. And feel through that light that our magnetism is creating our destiny. That the force of that bright light is attracting to it bright lights from many sources. And also directing the course of our lives. Wherever we go, that light itself cuts through all limiting conditions. And we move within that light with perfect assurance, in perfect harmony with divine will. Now feel also that this light is an emanation of love and of joy. So that we move not only with color and light, but also with these divine qualities of love and joy. And that radiating power, starting in the heart, raised to the spiritual eye and emanating out from there, will define our reality for, for whatever other qualities projected to us from other people or leftover karma that's trying to reach us when it meets that bubble of light, even if it's our own karma that we put into motion, that karma will be vaporized by the powerful force of light, color, love, and joy that is our chosen aura, the deliberately selected quality of consciousness with which we surround ourselves. Please now affirm, in Thee alone I am truly free. free. Freedom is forever mine in Thy light. In In Thee alone I am truly free. free. Freedom is forever mine in Thy light. In In Thee alone I am truly free. Freedom is forever mine in thy light. Om peace. Amen. Here we are. We are fin- we're going to finish a little of lesson four, the importance of right attitude, and then we're going into lesson five. Does anyone have any questions or thoughts from anything? Yes, Sarah's right on it. Uh, this is about visualization. Okay. And I, if there's something I'm familiar with, 
I can visualize it. I have no trouble with it if it's something I've actually seen. But um, I have trouble, and the idea we're supposed to do is visualize something here. That's difficult for me to do, especially if it's something that I have never seen or thought about. Uh, But I'm very good about getting a strong feeling about something. Right. So I'm just wondering how important that is. And oh, it doesn't have to take physical form. That's okay, that's what I was question. wondering about. I mean, if it does automatically for you, then by all means that just adds to it. But physical form is limiting. It's the feeling and energy of something that's much more important. So if you can't give it a physical form, give it energy. Okay. And that's, that's really what you want. See, if it takes form, it might take form. Sometimes it might take symbolic form. You know, it could, you know, the picture of a big heart, a big circle, a, a star. But I mean, you know, if you yeah, start visualizing an energy, the quality of that energy might take a symbolic form where it's not really what it is that you're thinking of. Good. Yeah, and so you have to let things happen. That's the art of it, mm-hmm. is that this is a, this is a, there's, there's principles and then there's the art of it. Okay, good question. Any others? Has anybody been um, had any experiment or experiencing with what we've been working with that's helping at all? We've been uh, trying to deal with the fact of having too many vacancies in our community, and especially we have a four-bedroom apartment with two bathrooms, and we really want a really good family or a really good group to come into that. So it's actually been a very good exercise to really try to practice some of these principles and seeing that place filled in the right way. This morning in, in uh, our staff meditation, I you know, conducted a long rambling prayer, which at one point included the word financial, which I noticed everybody in the room stumbled on. Everybody was right with me. And then I said the word financial, and there I just saw everybody in the room went... <laughs> which actually was very interesting to me, that it, was not, it wasn't possible for the staff to use, say the word financial in a prayer and um, I actually started reflecting on that because we're, we're really not in the habit of, of praying about money. I mean, it's almost like, I, I don't know, we're old uh, renunciates of various kinds. And it was a, it, but I started actually having to start thinking about it. This is the note on the back of my note here. I was going to talk about it in a little bit because it fits into chapter 5. It fits into 4 too. But you know... What we're trying to do when we visualize and when we converse with God, and this is really in Lesson 5, so I'm almost skipping to the end of Lesson 5, where he really talks about the fact that this is an extremely important point, the way he puts it, and I'm really now going to the end of Lesson 5, and then I'm going to go back into Lesson 4 a little bit. He says, this world is governed by consciousness, not merely by impersonal laws. And And a lot of times so far... Let me just find it exactly because I marked it. Um, so far we've been talking a lot about impersonal laws, especially when I was really talking about the inevitability of karma, the way the uh, energy flows up and down the spine. You know, certain actions bring certain results. And in fact, to a certain extent, we've been trying to impersonalize it because we've been trying to take ourselves out of it. Um, and to just really understand that you put certain energy in motion and certain results will come about. That, that was where Swami started this course. It was very, very important that we see it um, as metaphysics for just what it is. But then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but Swami starts talking here and, and 
I'll come to this back again when he talks about why wrong action is not a good idea and why right action will bring right results. It would help everyone to realize that the reality behind all existence is consciousness, not, as he puts it, a blindly operating law. This thought leads us to a subtle metaphysical levels and may seem merely theoretical to some people. Um, what he's really trying to say here, and I, there's not as much in it as just that one phrase, is that um, just in the same way that relationships between human beings do not operate according to rules that you lay out. You know, that's, that's when the people have certain kinds of brain malfunctions and they can't quite understand how human relationships work. You know, there's a lot of, unfortunately, young people born who don't quite, we have this growth of the spectrum of autism and things like that. There's a very interesting book by Temple Grattan is her name. And she's autistic, um, d- d- diagnosed autistic. She's a very, it's a very interesting book. I think it's, if you could hear what I see or something like that. I'm not sure that's the right title. Temple Grattan is her name. And the first book she wrote is the most interesting. But she has all the classic, many of the classic symptoms of autism. But she talks about how she's ended up being a tremendous success in life in the most peculiar way. Because she has a, a great attunement for animals, especially of all things, cows. Okay, she has an attunement with cows. And she has revolutionized the slaughtering of cows because she was able to understand the reality of cows and understood what frightened them about the slaughterhouses and redesigned them. She, she, she figured out that it was less about their being killed than about shadows and lights and shoots and wrong doorways in the process. This, you know, extremely unusual perspective. But she could go to these places and she could figure out what was scaring the animals and why it was hard for them to work with the animals and she would redesign them. And I read somewhere that, you know, like McDonald's and places like that that use a lot of beef, they're all requiring now that all the places where the animals are killed be according to the rules that this woman set up humane slaughtering of animals. As I said, it's a little bit bizarre. But, but she's, she's had this whole, you know, very interesting life. And then she writes these books about what it's like to be her. But she talks about um, her complete understanding of animals. She talked about how she can engineer one of these plants completely in her mind. She was surprised to find that other engineers had to make sketches and try models and do things like that. She could completely visualize it down to the last thing and then build it. I mean, you know, this is the peculiarity of what people call autism. But human relationships totally bewilder her. She just can't understand what goes on between people. And she's had to have really specific training so that she can at least act as if she knows how to relate. But she, she freely admits that the whole thing just doesn't make any sense to her because there's no system. You know, there's no system that she can find for how people relate to each other. It's about feeling and it's about, in the moment, uh, flows of energy and it's just outside of her. She's a genius in one way and a complete, total hopeless in another. Now, um, uh, why I brought that up, and she's an extreme example of it, I, I know a few other young people who have been diagnosed with various kinds of slight social 
disorders because they can't read body language, they can't read facial expressions, whatever parts of the brain are supposed to be able to interpret those sorts of things, they don't interpret it properly. And as a result, they're always a little bit confused about what's going on around them. Now, all of this is to say that everything that's about a relationship between two conscious beings cannot be reduced to formulas. It can't be, I do these things, then he does those things, then I do these things, then he does those things, and wow, we have a friendship. It, it has to be this constant, sensitive inner flow of energy. So one of the, the most important things we have to understand um, is that everything in this world is a symbol to teach us about a higher, truer reality. When we were teaching the book, The Hindu Way of Awakening, Swami makes that point so interestingly because we tend to think, um, you know, that this is the big world and everything else is littler than this because this is the one we can see. And the more subtle worlds, which we can't see, there's a kind of almost subconscious instinct that tells you that they're smaller because it's the world inside and I'm only this big, it must be littler. And we, we have a hard time comprehending that this is the tiny point of the pyramid and everything else is bigger than this. That this is, as Jyotish put it beautifully once, the most contracted we will ever be. You know, this is the smallest, most smashed, most, most confined we will ever be is what we are now rather than the opposite of that. And so everything in this world is a symbol of what it really represents. Like the sun, for example, represents the spiritual eye. We don't think of the sun, we think of everything else you know, being a symbol for the sun. We don't think of the sun being a symbol. And all of the experiences that we have here, father, mother, friend, beloved, parent, child, every relationship that we can think of is a practice run or a hint for us to get the idea of this possibility so that we will, search, we will be inspired to search for the reality behind that possibility the relationship between mother and child, or father and child, between parent and child, all of the many subtle and glorious dimensions of that, the experience of comfort and love and unconditional caring, whichever side of it you're on, is so that we will become inspired by those qualities and realize the potential, potential fulfillment of those qualities and then seek the source of those qualities. There are mothers in the world because there is a divine mother. There are fathers in the world because there is an infinite fatherly force. So in all of our relationship with God, with a higher power, with the source of what is really manifesting this universe, we have to understand that it's a relationship. And this was, this was the aberration essentially, that was going on in Judaism when Jesus was born. Because, the, the, because Moses had presented the will of God in terms of divine laws, because at the time that Moses, who was an avatar, came to the Jewish people who have this really good karma to attract avatars kind of on a regular basis, um, what they needed, as Master explains it, is that they were a, an enslaved people they needed to be brought forth into freedom and they needed, and it was, you know, the Kali Yuga going down or Dwapara going down and they needed simple clarity. So there was the Ten Commandments. This is what you will do and if you do this, you please this God. But then the aberration that set in was that it became more and more about rules 
And God became literally a judge. And it was a question of if you followed the rules and you pleased the judge, and that was how it worked. And of course, then a corrupt priesthood got a hold of it, and it became very convenient for them to be the arbiter of whether or not you had actually the coffers, and it was just rather a mess at that point. And Jesus stepped into that. And Jesus was able to say, He's your father. That's why he, among other reasons, why he called himself the Son of God, said that we are all sons of God. God is your father. This is a relationship. If you ask of your father a loaf of bread, will he give you a stone? He, he raised it like that is because the religion was being presented at that time. Priests were saying, well, if you don't follow the law, then that's it for you. It's just one, two, three, four, and oops, you missed it. And, and Jesus was mother, but he at least moved it from the judge to the father. And of course, Yogananda came and was able to move it all the way to the mother because um, you know, the planet is progressing and we're moving into a new age. But, but all of that talks about that we're working in a relationship. And this is where Swami says emphatically, this world was created by a consciousness, not a blindly operating law. A blindly operating law is you know, the image of justice with a mask on. It's like these are the rules and you make them or don't. Now we have talked a lot about that. But when it comes down to another dimension of it, which is where we are in this lesson, there's also this element of faith and activating divine grace. And when we're in, we, the way we relate to God, we understand by thinking about the way we relate. And if it really doesn't work with your best friend, it's not going to work with God either. It, it has to be as open as trusting, as sincere, as real. And part of what we trust is that, that God is just right there with us. And this is this tremendous loss that the new thought movement, or whatever you would call it, has by not wanting to have God. You just want source, infinite power, higher self, you know, all these things, because you lose the relationship. And especially what you lose is you lose the fact that there is a consciousness that is responding to the energy that we're putting out, and it's responding in a personal, alive way. It is not a blindly operating law. I visualize according to these certain rules, and I visualize enough, and I do enough of these affirmations, and then I activate the law. It's not like that at all. This is an intimate relationship. And so... When you have a friend, you wouldn't think twice. And I'm coming back to the word financial. You wouldn't think twice about saying, you know, we really need to solve this problem. Because if we don't, we're going to have such a mess. We're going to have such a financial mess. You know, it's just going to be more than we can handle. We need to solve it. We need to solve it in a timely way. I really must make this happen. I mean, you wouldn't hesitate to say that. Because you would be confiding your true reality. And in a... a an appropriate friendship, you wouldn't be either whining about it or expecting someone to pick up the pieces for you. You'd just be in a very straightforward way talking about what you're up against and what you need to do about it. And that's the kind of magnetism that draws from your friends a marvelous response, doesn't it? Because when they see your clear magnetic energy, people are always inclined to help you. I mean, people don't want to help you if they think you're the the wounded bird syndrome. You know, where if they touch you, you're going to be so helpless that they're going to have to take care of you for the rest of their lives. They'll just move around you because there's no, there's no 
nothing to give energy into. It just goes down a dark hole. And it's also very unmagnetic if everything is, is complaining and hopeless. And, but what's extremely magnetic is clear determination and wide open awareness of the facts, but dynamic will to do something about it. And I, I, I appreciate that, that I don't think collectively that we have really entirely grasped this as well as we can. Ananda manages to, to make things happen. But I, I think we rely on Swami more than we realize. And, and this is one of the reasons that he wrote this course, I believe. And one of the reasons why I felt inclined to take it on is because I'm, I'm trying to clarify for myself, as well as for all of us, how to really work with this. You know, and all the saints are very casual about all these things. There's nothing more or less spiritual about money. It's just one of the stories that we have to work with, isn't it? And some problems need to be solved because if they don't, they're going to get worse. And sometimes they're going to get worse in terms of money. And he's talking here, and I'm not going to finish completely, but he's talking here about you know, that kind of just clear energy where you know exactly what you need. And one of the things we need is we need to solve this problem now. Because if we don't solve this problem now, and you know, we're working on all of us who are involved in our community are working one in trying to get the right people in because, you know, we're going to probably all be together for quite a while and if financial conditions get difficult, we really would like to have a very strong community. Secondly, we just have to get people in because it, it puts everything in very much askew if we don't. And gosh, Divine Mother, we're conscious of this. It's not like we don't know it and we're not either ashamed or embarrassed or think it's anything else. We need financial help and we need it now. You know, we need exactly to solve this problem in a very practical way. And it's a relationship. It's a perfectly straight thing to say in a relationship. You wouldn't hesitate. And that's what we have to practice. We have to, there's a, a, a beautiful story. Frank Laubach, who wrote this little small book called Letters from a Modern Mystic, He was a Protestant missionary who was sent to the Philippines, supposedly to convert them. He sort of found out that they weren't really keen to be converted, and he began to sort of not be sure about exactly. He didn't lose faith, but his assignment became a little muddy to him. And he was separated from his family. They weren't able to join him for a long time. And so he decided to practice the presence of God. And he was a Protestant missionary, clergy person, so he wasn't trained in yoga or even in the Catholic tradition of saints. So he just kind of had to figure it out for himself. And uh, he began to practice the constant awareness of Jesus being with him and became a very, very great soul. Swami Kriyananda met him in the, toward the last years of Frank Laubach's life. Swamiji said, when he finally was, was able to attend a lecture that Frank Laubach was giving, this was many years ago, at some point, Swami had the chance to stand up and say that he'd been waiting for 25 years to meet Frank Laubach, and he was so happy to be here and finally be able to meet him in person. He said, I didn't give him much choice. He had to invite me to lunch. <laughs> so Swamiji just talked about having this just wonderful conversation with him. And uh, Frank said uh, that he was uh, suffering from a terminal illness. And Swamiji looked a little bit sympathetic, and he just said, old age, you know because he was really not very far from the end of his life. Now to get all the way back to where I wanted to say about him, um, Catherine, uh, Catherine at Ananda Village, her parents uh, trained to be Protestant missionaries. 
somehow or another it didn't work out for them for reasons I think that were medical but they were in a training program to be Protestant missionaries and Frank Laubach came to, to teach them at one point and, and her father told the story like this she said almost everyone who prays there's, you, you have this distinct sense that now I'm going to say a prayer and so we say the prayer and so there's a beginning, there's a middle and there's an end to the prayer that's how it always works when they were at a meal or somewhere and someone turned to Frank Laubach and asked him to pray, his father described it as, it's, it was as if there had been a constant inner dialogue going on between Laubach and Jesus and he made that dialogue audible for a while and then it went back inside. That was his prayer. Isn't that exquisite? You know, because it's a relationship. You're not propitiating some blind law. It's a relationship. And do you see how totally different that makes everything? And you see then how self-evident it is, how we should pray, what we should pray for. If you ask of your father, would he give you a stone? If you were hungry and your father was present, would you hesitate to ask him for the dinner that you need? It would be almost insulting, isn't it? Don't you feel slightly hurt if a friend really needs something and says, oh, I didn't want to bother you? When I did that to Swamiji once, he was in seclusion, and I got myself into rather a mess, and I decided that I didn't want to bother him. But Seva, who was intermittently seeing Swamiji delivering mail and so on, told him that I was in trouble and I needed help. So he sent word to me, and I came down to see him. He was in silence, so we conversed by him sitting at the typewriter. Then there were no computers, and he would type, you know, type sentences, and then I would speak, and then he would type answers, and we conversed that way. Um, and we discussed the issue of what I had gotten, the confusion I'd gotten into, and sort of straightened that out. And then we were walking um, out, away from the desk, and I said to him, uh, I'm so sorry to have bothered you. I didn't want to disturb you. I'm, I wish Seva hadn't told you, or something like that. And then Swami motions me like this and goes all the way back to the typewriter and he types you insult my friendship now I mean that got my attention he said what are friends for you know that's why I'm here I'm your friend that's why I'm here when you think that I am too busy to talk to you or that your need is an interruption to me you insult my friendship isn't that had a tremendous effect on me isn't that isn't that so And when Swamiji later, when I uh, worked uh, for him as his secretary, which I did for a time, and I kept his appointment schedule. And at that time he was much more available and people would come to me. But anybody who wanted to see him had to see me first. We didn't have telephones, we didn't have email, so, you know, it was also just a practical matter. I was more accessible than he was. And sometimes, because I was very protective of him, I was more concerned about his uh, reality than the reality of the people who were coming to see him. And he was very stern with me. And the first thing he said is, you're representing me and you must treat people as I would treat them, not as you would treat them. He said, I appreciate that you're being protective of me, but it's misplaced. And really it was. I mean, he doesn't need protecting. And uh, then he said, you must never make people think that my convenience is more important than their welfare. He said, it is not. 
And even if, for one reason or another, it's not possible to give them what they want, you must always make it clear to them that if it were at all possible, we would give it to them. Isn't that marvelous? You know, it's a very important thing to remember about Swamiji also, but because I suggest sometimes to people, why don't you write him? You know, you're not going to see him. Why don't you write him? Oh, I don't want to bother him. Where is that really coming from? You know, where is the thought, I don't want to bother him? I don't want to bother her. I don't want to bother them. Where does that really come from? Is that really consideration or is that some fear of not being really, you know, when, when you're really friends with people, you don't worry about that. It just doesn't occur to you because it's an open reciprocal relationship. You're not always weighing and measuring. You know, if you're not wanting to bother people, you're saying, well, your time, you're going to weigh and measure your time and I've already had too much. You insult the friendship. You see? Now, in our relationship with God, it's very important not to insult um, Divine Mother. You know, you're my own mother, but of course you're much too busy to take care of me. I mean, you know, every so often children confront their parents, you never loved me, you never took care of me. I mean, it's heartbreaking for a parent to be told that. But that's, you know, or you say to the child, why didn't you tell me that this was going on? Oh, I didn't want to bother you. And the mother just tears her hair. I could have helped you. You didn't have to go through this. Why didn't you let me help you? So what is there between a mother and a child, between a father and a child, that the parent won't give to us? What is it that we can't talk about? You see how important all that is? And how ego will masquerade as something else? And and we have to come to terms with it. So the end of all of that is, let's pray that we don't get into financial trouble in our community and can rent that apartment as quickly as possible. Let's see it rented. Let's see it happen. Is that fair? Is there anything else that... Uh, any questions or thoughts about that? That's a, a tremendous amount part, and I'm going to come back to it maybe t- tonight, maybe next week, because the whole last part of this lesson is all about that, about Swami's close relationship with God and how that's what responds. He's been giving us all these other rules, but then all of a sudden now, and he has it under the title of, you know, what is, what is it to be practical? And what it is to be practical is to have this close relationship with God. Because after all, he's the big boss of the whole story, you know. That's where all the power lies. And it isn't just my power to manifest. It's the conscious force that runs the universe. Beautiful thoughts. Aren't those beautiful thoughts? I was so inspired this afternoon thinking about that. Okay. Yes, Sahada? Do you want to... Pardon me? Oh, what's the point of the rules then? The question was, what is the point of the rules then? Uh, Because if a guest is coming to the front door, you want to be standing at the right door to greet him. That's how Master puts it when he talks about what's the point of, of meditation techniques. He said, when somebody is coming, you want to know what door they're going to come through and you want to be able to be standing at the right door. Because the relationship with Divine Mother requires a certain subtlety in order to be where we can hear her and to be in the right vibration where we can receive those answers. And so all the rules of right behavior affect our vibration, which 
and the, the rules of manifesting affect our vibration and put our consciousness where it needs to be in order for that link to be as powerful as possible. Does that make sense to that question? Because if we, we have to cooperate, because he, he didn't say that there weren't laws, he said that they aren't blindly operating laws. Uh, and part of the, one of the laws is that this is a conscious relationship, that there's a loving force that's responding to us. Because the ultimate power here is love. The ultimate force is love. It's bliss. And so we have to be in harmony with that. And all of the rules, so to speak, are all about distancing, separating ourselves from that which separates us, withdrawing from that which separates us and putting us back to where the mother lives, so to speak. That's part of it. The other part of it is, he describes it in here, when he says, by behaving correctly and honorably, let's see. Um, Well, I won't find the exact place, but he says, if we behave according to Dharma, the consistency of our dharmic action gradually works the kinks out of our subconsciousness. And um, when those kinks are resolved, then our magnetism is exactly right and like magnetism comes to us. It's just like, okay, this is a relationship. Divine Mother is not going to reward us for wrong behavior. She can't because it's not good for us to do so. Just like a good mother, if the child just throws tantrums, the mother will not respond until the child pulls himself together and speaks appropriately. Otherwise, why would I respond? Because I'm not supporting, I would be supporting the wrong aspect of you. So when we behave the rules, according to the rules of right behavior, when we follow the rules of magnetism and visualization, then Divine Mother is able to respond to us because we've done our part. We, we've put ourselves in a position where her response is now appropriate. Whereas if we just randomly exert no effort, no discipline, no willpower, no attunement, no refinement, and then expect her to rescue us, why should she? Because all we would have then would be what we wanted. We wouldn't have the self-mastery, which is what we're really seeking behind those desires. Does that make sense? Things that there's there's two tracks to the divine, or there's 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 two ways to live in this world. The, the the laws are there, and consciousness is there. If we tune into consciousness, the laws aren't nearly as important. No, the laws allow us to tune into consciousness, but the, we can't think of it only in terms of law. We have to also add into it that consciousness is there. There's an overlap between the two. There's an overlap. There's definite overlap between the two. And we, in our progression of consciousness, move from being sort of subjected to the laws only because that's the only thing we see to gradually transferring our ability to tune into the consciousness right. being the real guiding exactly. factor at that point. That's exactly right. The, the, law, the laws can be mitigated to a degree by that. The, the progression, actually, is the progression of Moses to Jesus to Master, which is Moses was the law, Jesus was the father, Yogananda is the mother. God as the judge, 
See, God as the judge with the divine law was appropriate progress at the time that Moses presented it because it was paganism, it was chaos, and the Jewish people that he was serving needed to come into right behavior. They needed to pull themselves together and do the right thing and just making it clear that this is how you must behave. These are the commandments of God. I mean, of course, Moses was an avatar, so he taught more than that, but that was the basic message. Then Jesus progressed it to the Father, a little bit impersonal, a little bit distant, but wise and fair, but still your own. And then Yogananda progressed it to the Mother. And then you may remember when the men sing that beautiful um, medley of Divine Mother chants, they often read what Master's words and, and one of the ones that one of the men reads is to Divine Mother, Must I really follow your law? I know you can forgive me everything right now. Take me on your lap, Mother, right now. And Master says, God likes it when you pray like that. But of course, you can't pray like that as, a, as a, an excuse from following the law, trying to get around being dharmic. But at a certain point, the law dissolves and what you really have is devotion and then the devotion trumps everything but you can only have that kind of devotion when you have great purity of heart and you can only have great purity of heart when you have exercised the discipline necessary to bring yourself in conformance with everything else but in the, at the last point that's why I was saying the new thought movement that doesn't take it all the way to the relationship with God and Divine Mother isn't finishing it's just bringing you to that power of following the law and knowing what the laws are, but that can so easily go into ego that you begin to stray away from the fundamental laws. And, and also it, it doesn't fulfill. It's too dry in the end. So at, after all of that, it comes down to just this very intimate relationship. What does it, Sri Teshwar says, all of divine all of the Vedas, all everything can be uh, just reduced to God, the word God, God is love, or just the word God, that's enough. Mother, you can just get down to that. There was, it's so sweet in uh, Swamiji's autobiography, I think it's in The New Path, after Master died, after he left his body, and they had his body laid out in Mount Washington, and all the disciples were coming, and one of the men just fell against Master's now lifeless form, mother, mother, he cried like that. And Swamiji said, you know, it was really just how we all felt. He was, he was our mother in the sense of the own, the compassionate, all-manifesting mother. And of course, he was clearly a male person, but he, he was the mother. It all came down to something so elemental as that. Very um, marvelous. And then Master also says, that straight love for the mother can cut through a lot of everything else. And we just sort of go back to that. I was helping a friend recently who needed an affirmation, and the affirmation that came to me was, Divine Mother, I need your help. (laughs) Just, I need your help. Be close to me. Hold my hand. Just take care of me. And it really, that just really, that's what it comes down to. Divine Mother, I need your help. And I need it right now. Because otherwise, look at all these things that are going to happen. Just like a little child. You know, oh, you know, it's a hurt. Mother, I need your help. Look, it hurts. There, thank you. You made it better. Is there any other questions? Why don't we take a break? Because we're going to go in another direction right now. 
Okay, I had a few uh, more points that were actually left over from last week that I just um, didn't quite feel that got enough energy. You know, I was watching um, some people the other day and Swamiji talks in this chapter about, this is now we're back to lesson four, right attitude. And remember we talked about it last week a lot in terms of the flow of energy in the spine, the up and down flow of energy in the spine. And I didn't emphasize one thing that, that Swamiji really emphasizes in here, which is worth speaking about, which is he talks about a couple of very simple things that are related to that energy. And sometimes um, when our energy is beginning to slip, there are simple signs that we can see and then there are simple things that we can reverse. I've been very um, impressed recently in meditation by the fact that something I learned really early in meditation, of course we all learned, which is that when you're meditating your eyes should be above the horizon line. And I have found without exception when my mind is wandering in meditation my eyes have dipped. It's just always true. And the mere, the mere effort to lift your eyes back up above the horizon line in itself begins to concentrate your mind. And so we, we're always asking ourselves, what should I do with these thoughts and so on like that? Well, you can't have them if you're looking up into the light. The, the having of them requires that you lower your eyes to either the conscious or the subconscious level. I mean, it's such a simple thing, but it really has a profound effect. Now, when we're talking in chapter 4, lesson 4, about the necessity to keep the energy flowing up and down the spine, I mean, one of the most fundamental ways that energy flows up or down is posture. And you know how often our parents told us, stand up straight, pull your shoulders back, over and over again, sit up straight, don't slump. I mean, everybody now surreptitiously tries to pull themselves up a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, whenever our energy begins to sink, look at yourself. In almost all cases, your posture is, our posture is collapsing too. Or I, I recall reading somewhere uh, in Swami or Master's writings about one of the reasons you want to stand with a straight spine is that having a straight pine, spine builds willpower. You know, just the act of standing up straight because in itself you can see, you know, it requires a certain amount of conscious determination. You know how the military, you know, puts such a force on standing up straight because what they really need in that particular field of endeavor is those men and women have to have willpower. You know, they have to have willpower that overrides even the survival instinct. They have to override so much with their willpower and so they make those people stand up absolutely straight because there's a strong relationship between physical posture and, and your state of consciousness and energy running up and down the spine. I mean, that's why when we sit to meditate, we sit in a very straight posture because that allows, that frees the energy to flow. And, and it's, it's, if we have habitual states of mind that are not responsive to our willpower, we can sort of get in the back door. And he talks about posture. And, you know, one thing that... In, uh, it. Uh, uh, Swami also comments on, and I, I just saw someone in a restaurant the other day or in a movie, people who sit on their spines, you know, instead, instead of sitting on your sit bones, you kind of pull your hips out and you're basically sitting on your spine. Sometimes it's an exaggerated posture that you see people have, but just the very act of sitting on your spine, um, you can see how it just completely makes 
and your energy is flowing almost horizontal at that point. It's really not even going up or down. It's, but it's, it's definitely doesn't have that dynamism. So a lot of times we, some, we feel like, you know, the whole pile of karma is just more than we can handle. And, but you just go in through a back door and just the actual effort just to have right posture and be dynamic in the way we meet the world. And I, I didn't want it to slip away because it was so simple. And um, if we're not inclined to do it, if, or if we're inclined, remember I, I told the story, I think in this class, about when Swami reprimanded me and told me not to cry. I think it was in this class I was talking about it. And just the effort not to cry, I mean, it also, I mean, even just as I imitated, I had to pull my spine real straight. You know, because crying by its nature causes you to collapse. So in order not to cry, I had to really hold my spine up. But the act of holding my spine up made it harder for me to cry. And crying was collapsing into self-pity and, you know, despair and all the things that we fall into, women fall into when they weep, as a rule. Okay? So, so don't pass over the small helps. And then he adds to that one also a Breathing. You know, the act of breathing, the act of breathing deeply, and I, don't, I won't emphasize it at great length, but breath and posture um, should be written down and, and really held. Stand up straight and breathe deeply. If, if our life isn't going the way we want it to go, stand up straight and breathe deeply. Because the, the act of doing that affirms that we have the willpower to go forward and make it be something else. And sometimes... Um, when you, have, when you just don't know what to do, do something. <laughs> and if you do something that changes the energy, then you gradually can change everything about it. Fair enough? Now, this is quite related, and I was waiting, Lee, till you came back, because this was your remark. Uh, when we were talking about that man that Swami starts Lesson 4 with, who after you know, years of prospecting finally found the, found the gold mine and converted it into cash and put it into the wood stove and then burned up all the money... That, that was the story. And then he got up the next morning and he said, all right, I'll just go out and find more gold. And he did. This is a true story. And Lee, you honestly muttered under your breath, I would have just given up. You know, and you were perhaps being more self-deprecating than was true, but you certainly echoed the way a lot of us felt. You know, could I have exerted the willpower to pick myself up so dynamically from such a crushing defeat and just go forward with you know, even more determination now, the point that I wanted to emphasize here that Swami wrote about was he said the man had good karma and the man had bad karma and they were vying against each other. You know, it's like he had the good karma to discover the gold and the bad karma to burn up all the money. And so there they were perfectly balanced. And then he said, but his, the, his willpower tipped the scale. And that, that was seemed like a really important point because... Very often, we don't know. I mean, we really, I mean, all the time we don't know. We don't know, as Master put it once, how, if we have to pull the nail out of the wood and we're not the ones or we don't remember driving it into the wood, you're pulling on the hammer, you don't know how much of the nail is left in the wood. You don't know whether just a little more effort and the thing is going to pop out or whether you're going to have to just pull on it for the next 15 years of your life to get it out. But you never know when that tipping point is going to come. And often the tipping point is determined by the response that we have to the situation. Do we put out a response that causes more and more of whatever that dark cloud is to get sucked into our aura? 
Or do we put out a response that, that puts out a completely different kind of magnetism that, that blocks the entry of whatever that downward pulling is and then also matches dynamic energy? This extremely interesting story is exactly that. If he hadn't gotten up that day and gone out again, as uh, Swami said, who, somebody else might have found the, the gold or something could have happened that would have deflected him from, from it. So it's, it's extremely um, vital to understand that interplay. Um, and th- there's also another factor, of course, for almost all of you who are listening now. You know, we have a guru. We, we have a divine force. We have guardian angels. There, there are divine factors. There's the story that Swamiji tells very often of um, one, a man who was a monk at, who became a monk at SRF with Swamiji and he was a, a mountain climber. He was a Swiss man and he was a mountain climber. And I think it was Premamoy, Brother Premamoy is who it was. And Premamoy told this story about climbing in the Alps there and he was making a first ascent up a, a mountain that he didn't know. He didn't know the route, and no one else had ever been up that route, that side of the mountain. The other side of the mountain had been scaled many times, but he was taking the other side. And he got up a certain distance, and suddenly he found that the only way up there was a lip that went out over space, and you had to climb over it like that. He was on a ledge, and it was impossible to go down. And the only way up required that he go upside down over space. And there he was. And he thought, well, this looks like it can't be done, but I might as well try. And he would go up and he would just reach a certain point. And every time he reached that point, he would fall off the mountain back onto the ledge. And, and Premamoy thought, as a young man, well, I just can just starve to death here or I can die trying. And over and over, he just climbed and fell, climbed and fell, climbed and fell. He said he did it like maybe two dozen times. And then suddenly, he reached the point where he had fallen every time, and he said a force held him to the mountain. And he went upside down, out over the, the open space like this, but this force held him to the mountain, and he was able to get up over the lip. And his belief was simply that the, his guardian angels or angelic forces were inspired by his grit and determination and figured we should just help this poor fellow out. Look, he's just not going to quit. And they just held him to the mountain and moved him over the top. Willpower tips the scale. That's the point you want to keep in your mind. Willpower tips the scale. I don't really know which the way this is going to go, so I'm going to throw a little willpower on the side of where I'm trying to get and that'll tip the scale over. And how can we lose by that? And often we can win. Master actually said that the karmic law works differently for devotees. He says it's A, A to B, B to C. You know, one step leads to the other, except for devotees it doesn't. Because God will intercede. Because we're in relationship. And once you're in relationship, sometimes Divine Mother, this is the prayer that I was repeating it just a little while ago. Divine Mother, I know I'm supposed to follow your law, but I don't really want to because I know you can just go around it. Of course, that precludes a great many other things, but willpower, faith, which is a form of willpower, faith, having the faith, which is what our number five lesson is about toward the end, having the faith is also an act of willpower because how do you have faith? You hold at bay all the wrong attitudes that you might have instead. 
So faith is also an act of willpower if it's dynamic faith, not just a kind of passive, oh, somebody else, please take care of this. I know in one of Swami's Sunday readings, he had the phrase, most people are just waiting to be rescued. I just love that phrase. Because so often in my life I realize I'm in a situation and somehow I'm just waiting to be rescued. I'm not putting out any willpower. I'm not being creative. I'm just hoping that something will happen. You know, like they'll find me here and then somebody will just airlift me out. But of course, they won't. Not if it's your own karma. But willpower tips the scale. Now, the other point, is there any question or comment on that before I go on? These are all the cleanups from lesson four. Um, The other part that I think I spoke to sufficiently, but I just want to make sure, because we have talked about karma, and see, it's interesting how Swami builds this. First he talks all about the the inexorability of karmic law, but then he starts telling us all the ways in which it doesn't apply. Um, But he's saying here that karma comes and goes, you know. We have good karma for a while, then we have challenging karma, then we have good karma for a while, then we have challenging karma. Good means pleasing and easy. It doesn't necessarily mean good in a cosmic sense. But things go our way, and then things don't go so easily, and then things are more difficult. Because all of those conditions, ego-related conditions, are waves on the ocean. And as we've talked about many times, the waves are just going to go up and down. I used to be, I used to joke about it that when things were going, I remember once specifically, this was many years ago, I just entered a period of my life of really everything was just rolling along on greased wheels. And I remember saying to David, this is a very good period of my life. And then I said, but someday it won't be. You know, just like, I sort of wanted to whisper it. I didn't want anyone to really notice that everything was going really well because I knew inevitably something would happen and it would not go so well. And I was also wanting to prepare myself for that, not become totally dependent or uh, absolutely out of control just because things were going well. But things were going really well and someday they won't. And then when they go badly, someday they go well again. I mean, that's just the way it is. But what Swami wants us to really understand is that even though karmic conditions rise and fall, if we have the right attitude, no matter what the karmic conditions are, we have something that is eternal. Because right consciousness, not dependent on the rise and fall, that's your real wealth. If you really think about it, that's what it is that we really want. Everything that we think we want, you know, money, relationships, um, appreciation, all of these things are because of the state of mind we think we will have if we have those conditions. But right attitude is that state of mind. And so if we go right to the heart of what it is we're trying to accomplish, um, he also makes the strong point that right attitude is magnetic. And we have a better chance of attracting it externally also if the consciousness is correct. I also wanted to um, just really talk about this word intuition just a little bit because he he emphasizes it a lot. In in some talk very recently, maybe it was even in Los Angeles, Swamiji spoke about this. He, He emphasized the fact that we're not trying to not have feeling, that 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 our feeling nature is is a vital important 
you know, is a fundamental part of our nature. But intuition, as he said it so simply, is simply calm feeling. And calm feeling can be so much more sensitive than agitated feeling. And part of what makes it difficult for us to hear the intuitions and also makes it more difficult for us to act on them is when our feelings are agitated. You know, how many times, I certainly can speak for myself, have we done just unbelievably dumb things because our feelings were agitated? We spoke in ways that we didn't really mean to speak. We missed opportunities that were right in front of us. We made really idiotic decisions that in retrospect we can't imagine why we made them because our feelings are agitated. I mean, there was... Someone brought home a a certain product that a person had asked for and somehow the person reacted to some aspect of the thing. Oh, I couldn't use that. That, That's not possible, right? That's not really what I needed. I didn't want that. And it was just like in no amount of reason, because the person never calmed down, could get them to see that really what this was was just exactly what they needed. Long time passes and finally eventually they have to go out and just get that very thing that they rejected just because there was some kind of an agitated reaction to it. Now, on the most extreme level, when we have likes and dislikes, I mean, the single greatest obstacle to feeling intuition, to feeling what God wants us to do, is that our, our feelings are committed one way or another, and only, therefore, certain vibrations can get through. And that's why Swami just says, when we completely calm the feelings of the heart, then intuition is automatic. That was the experience that I had with him when I was having so much trouble knowing what God wants. And I finally realized it because my feelings were not calm. My feelings were profoundly committed to one truth and very fearful of the other. And as soon as I was willing to actually calm my feelings and relinquish both sides of that equation, I didn't have any problem knowing what I should do. And that's what he was saying to me. Whenever we have difficulty knowing what we ought to do, it's because we haven't sufficiently calmed the feelings of the heart. And the the other aspect of this, which is very important, is that it's extremely important to cultivate a sensitive heart. You know, sometimes people use the spiritual path as some kind of an excuse where they don't have to become sensitively aware of, of the subtlety of life around them, the subtlety of other people's consciousness. You know, that we can somehow, we're justified in being a little bit hard-hearted. It's not that we have to constantly be engaged in taking care of people and responding, but a, a deep sensitivity, and that's what... Um, I don't know what context I was talking about, how, how easily Swamiji's feelings spill over into tears these days. Because he has cultivated now such a sensitivity of heart that the, you know, just the slightest nuances of divine grace just move him so deeply. And, and that's, what we're, that's what we're really working toward. And see, the only way you can be that sensitive is when you're out of the agitation of, I like it, I don't like it, I'm afraid of it, I want it. And then we can really experience what is. Um, and it, it seemed a point worth touching on because it, it seems like these lessons are a little bit of a transition out of you know, the impersonal law into the, the subtlety of the art and the subtlety of the feeling. And then the last um, thing I want to say, and this will be the end for tonight, when, when there's so many of these lessons are also about our unity with others and getting, getting past our our selfishness. Um, 
I heard this lovely phrase that I, I thought would bore repeating. It's not master's words, but it's great words. It says, except for one insignificant exception, the entire world is composed of others. <laughs> I thought that was a marvelous way to think about it. So those are my closing remarks for tonight. Unless anything has, anyone has anything else to say? All right, God bless you. Tomorrow night we take a, next week we take a holiday from this class and have a different one, as someone said. And so then the following week we'll finish Lesson 5 because there's a lot that we haven't touched.